Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Tom Fernelli. That's Danny Cannell. That's Bud Elliott. I'm Chip Patterson opening up the big old bag of mail. Oh, I'm sorry that we left you mailbag, but we are going to be uh, continuing to return. And the way that you can get a question into a future mailbag episode is to go and leave a five five-star review and then in that review go ahead and put your question for the mailbag we will tackle it in a future mailbag episode now these wednesday shows are going to be one place that we do it but you never know we could pop open the mailbag on a on a tuesday on a friday throw it in with the monday show uh we're going to try to do everything we can to continue to engage the listeners the same way that we have uh, all throughout the off season but a few headlines before we get into the big old bag of mail. Uh, the first is a headline that we meant to tackle on Monday uh, on the live show before we ran out of time. And it's okay because we have even further news and development on this front. UConn head coach Randy Edsel, initially after the um, another disappointing performance for the Huskies, he announced that he was going to be stepping down at the end of the season. Just wait. There's more. No, he's out right now. Uh, a Reportedly, there is uh, some of this stems from um, just sort of, you know, where the team is at, the support of the locker room and the decision for him to just go ahead and, and step down. Probably I read this as an effort for UConn to save itself from what could have potentially been an absolutely embarrassing football season. The results may still be embarrassing as UConn continues to uh, move through its path as an FBS independent with games like, Clemson in Death Valley on November 13th, 54 and a half. I don't know. Uh, so what do we do with, uh, with this news? Do you think that UConn, again, like, are they going to be able to uh, pull this together to where like they have avoided disaster or is the season already a lost, uh, lost cause as it is? Feels like a lost cause. Like, I, I don't know. I, I included it in the Monday after. I don't know if you guys saw the video of it, but it was during the game. <laughs> they were down 10, you know, when they were down 38, 28. And there was one of the coaches on the sidelines, like talking to the team, rallying them during a timeout. And he does that thing that all coaches do at the end. Like when you're in a little huddle, he puts his fist up and he's like, you know, saying, all right, this on three, this on three. Not a single player raised their hand. They just didn't even, they barely even looked at him. Do you know who the, the coach is going to be? It's the defensive coordinator. Do you know who the coach was in that viral video? The defensive coordinator. Correct. Like, so good luck to UConn. This is a program that's just a mess. Like, think about it. If you're a player on this team, your season was canceled. I think they did vote on it. I think they wanted to cancel last year, I think. I'm not 100% sure on that. But you sat at home, watched everybody else except for three, you know, FBS schools play last year. Then you see... 
You're no longer in the American Conference. Then you see the year before that, you had the worst defense in the history of college football. Like, good luck. I don't know. This is it's a it's a weird spot. Like they're probably better off playing FCS or somewhere else. They're just it's a program that really has to do some soul searching, but it's gonna be a dumpster fire this season. Like I would you could bet against them all year long and probably make a fortune if sooner or later there's gonna be an adjustment that's made. But I just don't see much for this program in the near future. I, I don't know if there was a player vote or if the players were just consulted, but I, I, I think that like if you just look at the recent way that that program's gone like they decide to leave the american because they'd rather have their basketball programs in the big east which is fine if that's what's more important to you more power to you but that's not a great sign to the football program it's like now nah, we're going to leave this conference go independent because we want we care more about where our basketball team plays then not only do you cancel the football season last year but then if you're a football player you have to watch both the men's and women's basketball teams play full seasons just a couple months after your school decided it was too dangerous for you to play. So, like, the messages that you're getting from your school, if you're a football player in that program, aren't exactly we care about you. So I think the future of... Uh, Danny, you lived in Bristol uh, yeah. for a decent amount of time. Did you get a sense of, like, what the support is around the state of Connecticut? Uh, they love their women's basketball. <laughs> I mean, that's the number I mean, one. It really, and, and go, and then it's not, it's just not a, and yeah, you know, growing up in Florida and covering a lot of games, going to school at Florida State in the South, it's just a professional sports town, like you, or sports state. Like you go, like, I don't know, I'm sure you guys saw what happened to Hartford basketball. Mm -hmm. Their basketball team was pretty good. They were doing all right. And they're no longer going to be a Division One basketball program. They're like, they just kind of threw in the towel. They're just, there's not a lot of groundswell, like local outrage. Like I'm surprised you like does it I don't even know if this gets much attention in the local papers up there. It's just not that big a deal. The the college landscape to them. They got you'll go around, you'll see Giants, Patriots, Jets, Red Sox, Yankees. Like it's a professional sports town. They just they're not in they're more into the academic side of college, not the athletic side. And part of it too, like going to that, like they used to have an NHL franchise, but mm. I feel Whoa, like what ha what ha what happened to them? They they <laughs> moved to some like uh, Hick State down south, but like the Whalers were in Hartford. But I feel like part of the problem that they had was like what Danny's mentioned. Like there's tons of professional sports fans. It's just a lot of them are bigger fans of like the New York and Boston teams than they are the local teams. And it's not that dissimilar to the Miami Hurricanes with the stadium set up, like the rent. <laughs> mm -hmm. which is in Hartford is not close to stores. So, and Miami has rich tradition and they struggle to get fans to the game, like students to go to the game, like good luck getting, you know, UConn students to get on a bus and go, you know, make the trek from stores to Hartford. It's just, it's a dumpster fire. I, I, I think they need to do some soul search and decide if they want to continue playing football at all. Whoa. Yeah. Like, yeah I, I agree. Just, okay. You think so? Like just shut yeah. it down? Because I was or go FCS where they were before. Go to Colonial. Just, that was yeah. I was going to say the Colonial Athletic Con uh, uh, Colonial Athletic Conference Association CAA, right? 
the colonial Creative artists agents. Oh, oh. <laughs> um, Villanova plays football there. And Villanova is like a, a solid FCS program. Villanova is a big East uh, basketball foe. Like, do you just try to find those other programs where it's a little bit more like-minded in terms of your sports setup and find a little bit more success? That was, if you look at the makeup of the colonial for football too, it's, you know, all throughout that mid Atlantic to Northeast. So, you know, travel or anything else. I, I felt like that is a door where I am questioning whether I'm being disrespectful by being like, Hey, go to the colonial or whether I think I'm giving really good advice where I'm thinking like your, your other, your cousins are there. Uh, you're going to feel more comfortable and you're going to have more success. Like maybe you need to head on down the road there. This is way beyond my knowledge base, but like financially, is that viable? Was well, an independent, you've got like your one, you've got the payouts that you get from all of the games that you play away, and then you've got uh, a home game TV package. Shout out to us. Yeah, CBS Sports Network. <laughs> By <Yeah>. the way, <laughs> I was this probably a little too much info, like too much honesty. But that was very much a topic of discussion because CBS Sports Network is where I go on the weekend to do studio stuff. And a lot of the conversation was like, get ready for a lot of UConn games. And you can decide whether there was excitement around that or get ready for a lot of UConn games. <laughs> well, here's to, uh, you know, Danny and the seven minutes of analysis he's going to be having <laughs> to do every single weekend and hoping that uh, that we get some some entertainment and the move on from Randy Edsel uh, leads to uh, some some better or at least more exciting storylines and and around UConn football. Uh, the two, new top 25, a little bit of a delayed re- release. Sometimes we'll toss this out. Usually we'll toss this out as a question on Monday based on the Sunday polls, uh, but did not come out until Tuesday. Uh, as we saw, there was like Indiana bounced from the poll in the AP side. LSU bounced from the poll. We saw uh, Wisconsin, Miami, and North Carolina hang on despite losing some big jumps for Penn State and Iowa. Uh, any big takeaways from what you saw with the new set of top 25 rankings? So much for the love affair with Indiana. I Gone. It was, I was surprised by that. I do the tomorrow's top 25 today. Normally on Saturday nights, it ran on Monday night. And I thought that Indiana, based on the quality of the opponent they lost to and the setting with it being in Kinnick Stadium, the voters would have given them a little bit more leeway with the quality loss angle. But hey, that's I guess that's it. Is Indiana football done? Packing up? Moving on? <laughs> <sighs> okay, here's a bet. Will Indiana appear in the top 25 of any poll again this season? Let's pull up their schedule. I'd say no. Wasn't their win total seven and a half? Now it looks like it might be under, like it just didn't look great. I hope I hope we're wrong, but I would I would take the no, they won't appear. That, another so thing that's – oh, go ahead. Well, their next games are they host Idaho, so I, I feel pretty good mm-hmm. about that one. Uh, they host Cincinnati. If, yes, they, could, if they win Cincinnati, they might climb back in. Correct. Two and one then. Then yeah. they go on the road to Western Kentucky, who could beat them. I don't think they will beat them, but it's that's not like a total layup now that, that WKU has, has a real offense. Mm-hmm. Um, then they're on the road at, at Penn State. They host Michigan State and Ohio State. So if they're going to get in, I think it would be after they reach three and one if they do run the table uh, after the Western Kentucky game. Yeah, I think Cincinnati beats them. Yeah, you know, we'll do our picks then. But 
Like that's why I don't think they get back in. And that was a bad thing for Cincinnati that Indiana lost. Like if they're, I know Tom will love this. If they're going to make the playoff, we can act like it. Then they would have needed Indiana to be good. And that doesn't look to be the case. Golly. Now their chances went from 0.00% to 0.000%. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I don't like to, I like, I've made pretty much clear my feelings on the top 25 like this early in the season. But I do think UCLA should have been higher. Like if you really went in with a blank mindset, said, all right, who was impressive? Who has done more on the field to this point? Not only did they physically dominate LSU, a team that all of us were like, could be the variants, could be one one way or another. But a lot of people were like, hey, this could be one of the top teams that could challenge Texas A&M for that spot right behind Alabama. They did look pretty impressive against them, and they've got two wins, including another one where they completely, you know, were in control of a game against Hawaii. I know Hawaii is not good, but I think, like, if they had started the season in the top 25, they would have jumped higher. Does it make sense? But because they weren't, like, voters are like, eh, I can't go that high, which I hate about the top 25. Like okay. that's one of my beefs. But sometimes I do think with rankings, it's important about your neighborhood. And I do think that they landed with USC, mm-hmm. which means that they are in the discussion for best team in the Pac-12 South. Arizona State ranked behind UCLA. Utah ranked behind UCLA. It's like they it's like the total disrespect for the Pac-12, right? You know, where we're just like, okay, I will slide you to USC, but I will not move you above USC. That was definitely the adjustment I feel like I saw. And they lost some wiggle room with Penn State and Iowa being two of the biggest movers on up into, I guess, 10 and 11 or something like that, knocking right on the door. Uh, I will will say just though from like a, like a comparing to the schools in their neighborhood of the poll, like if UCLA has looked more impressive to me than USC did in its win, UCLA has shown more to me than its two games than Florida did in its win. It looked more impressive to me than Oregon. So I get what Danny's saying in that it's just there's when it comes to the poll earlier in the season, we see a little more volatility. I like saw like LSU dropped out Indiana, like they'll do that, but there's still like that sliding scale where it's like if you're already ranked up here. I can only take you down four or five spots, even if you don't look great. You know what I mean? And so it's like even like Georgia moves up from five to two, despite not scoring on offense. Like I I understand that their defense was great, but there was nothing about that game. Even the fact that they beat Clemson that made me think that's the second best team in the country. What will be fascinating to me, because I totally agree with the Georgia and I, I actually had Ohio state too. And like a little, you know, top eight that I put out. Will be fascinating to me. We'll see what happens if Ohio State beats Oregon. You know, it's a two touchdown fade. Let's say they beat them by two touchdowns or three touchdowns. Do the voters have enough fortitude to jump them over Georgia? I say there's no way they do. But if you were doing it off resumes, considering who Georgia plays next, which I forget who it is, it's not a very qual uh, UAB yeah. like. They they should, but I don't think they will. Like I think that I think you will see Bama, Georgia entrenched one and two all season long until the SEC championship game. But there will be, I think, uh, this is way too inside rankings. We'll move on to the mailbag quickly. But track the first place votes because while there might be enough voting points for Georgia to be holding an edge over Ohio State. I think you will see some of the first place votes trickle to Ohio State if the Buckeyes blast Oregon and then just continue to start rolling through the Big Ten schedule because there will be there will be a lot of voters who have just entrenched the Alabama-Georgia 1-2, but 
But we saw like Clemson lose all its first place votes. I think Ohio State lost some first place votes. Oklahoma lost some first place votes. And they all went to Alabama. But if better cases are being made elsewhere, I do think we could see that as um, as one thing to when we're talking about the jockeying in the top five, that's one way that it could end up going. All right, let's dig into the big old bag of mail. And this first one comes from Book It 2012. Love the pod keeps my hour commute entertaining. I'm a huge Irish fan and Iowa State fan. I live in Iowa, but no worries, Chip. I'm not mad at you. You do you. Brian Kelly is a good coach. Averaging over nine wins a season at Notre Dame is very good with their consistent schedule strength. I should not secretly want Matt Campbell to come over. However, my issue with BK is the lack of QB development. In my opinion, he hasn't had a starter that developed to be elite or even better, really. When one starter gets hurt or loses his job to the backup, the original starter transfers out. Everett Golson, Malik Zaire, Brandon Wimbush, or declares early for the NFL draft to Sean Kaiser. R- Tommy Reese didn't, but that's because he lacked the skills. Yikes. I feel like uh, Phil Jerkovic got way better after transferring to Boston College. Danny, you're a quarterback guy. What does BK need to do better, or am I just crazy? Love you guys. Go Irish. I think it was great that he listed all the quarterbacks that have been at Notre Dame and even some that have left. Do any of those blow you away with their talent, like their skill set? No. And like Phil Jerkovic, maybe he will, but he didn't really get an opportunity to develop because he wanted to play. Now, maybe you could say that was the wrong decision that was made, but you had a multi-year starter and Ian Book. Like, that's a tough call to make. Um, I think the only thing he may be missing is a five-star, slam-dunk, star quarterback that comes in there. That'll make his development process look a lot better. You know? Like... I, and I think the timing of this is probably, I don't know when we got this mailbag question, but we'll have to, a lot remains to be seen, but we already saw a different version of Jack Cohn. Like that would be an argument in the other direction. Like, wait, where was that Jack Cohn at Wisconsin? Like we didn't see that. And I do think now that Tommy Reese is calling the plays, maybe you see quarterbacks start to really maximize their talent. So as a delegator, it's hard to put it on uh, Brian Kelly but maybe the move with Tommy Reese calling the plays makes him a lot makes him look a lot better as a head coach because I think you're going to see the quarterbacks and the offense in general start to look better as well. Yeah, I, I think it's I understand the why the questioner feels that way, but I also think it's it's not totally accurate because Ian Book was not an elite quarterback, but Ian Book developed. Ian Book last year, we spent all last season talking about how much better Ian Book looked as a passer. Now, maybe that was Tommy Reese and Tommy Reese knowing how to utilize him better with the play calls. But I also think if you go back, like Danny, you mentioned, Deshaun Kaiser left to go to the NFL. Like he was okay in his first year as a starter. The second year, he took a pretty big step forward. And then he cashed in and said, I'm going to the NFL. Now, obviously, it hasn't worked for him in the NFL. And I don't have high hopes for Ian Book as an NFL quarterback either. So, these weren't maybe NFL guys. And I feel like maybe that's the one area where Brian Kelly and that Notre Dame program needs to improve is bringing in those guys, but they have brought in to the questioner's point, highly recruited rated guys like Dane Chris before who never really worked out, but not every highly rated quarterback turns out to be a superstar. So I think there's been hits. I think there's been misses. There hasn't been a Justin Fields or a Trevor Lawrence or a Baker Mayfield or, you know, Jalen hurts or Tua Tagovailoa. but there's been a lot of very solid you know, college quarterbacks there who have improved. They just 
aren't NFL players. I agree. I think we actually did have some guys who had some real arm talent. You know, Brandon Wimbush could throw the heck out of the ball. He just wasn't super accurate with it and didn't really throw with anticipation. Uh, Dracovic could could go down as a pretty big miss, to be honest. Uh, like he looks really good at Boston College. If he continues to develop, I don't think there's any reason why he won't get a shot at the NFL. Uh, but I don't think he's a bad developer of quarterbacks. He just hasn't had that one who turned out to be like elite elite, and that's probably what is going to need to take uh, Notre Dame over that next level. However, uh, to the point about wanting Matt Campbell, like has Matt Campbell had an elite quarterback? Like I'm unless you guys are really on the Brock Purdy train, which I'm no. not. Uh, I don't think Matt Campbell has a better track record of QB development than Brian Kelly does. No, no. The, the Matt Campbell is all about your five-star culture, right? <laughs> like you're just, you're, you're doing the, it's the way you handle business. It's the yeah. reason why the Detroit lions offered him $68 million to come and coach their uh, team. It wasn't because of his quarterback development. It's because they think that he could put in an overall big picture game plan that could work. I will give him some credit for Logan Woodside at Toledo. I thought Woodside improved quite a bit under Campbell, but it was still, it was a similar situation to what it has at Notre Dame where it's like you took a guy who's a good college quarterback and you made him a better college quarterback. All right. Next question comes from Carter. Hey guys, love the show. With so little experience among SEC quarterbacks, it's hard to put together a pecking order outside of JT Daniels and Matt Corral. Could y'all rank the top three to five, and I suggested five, top five quarterbacks in the SEC and give a name or two that could have a breakout season and work their way onto the list? So does everyone agree with the Matt Corral, JT Daniels one and two, or is there some no? No. Okay. The, what's the order? Bryce Young one. Bryce Young one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd say Corral too. Anybody Corral track? Okay. Is Daniels three? To this point, I mean, he it's there's been obviously he's a highly rated recruit and there's hope for him, but like I just mentioned a couple minutes ago, this is an offense that didn't score a touchdown against Clemson. And granted, they're missing they don't have great receivers. They're missing George Pickens. Their offense has been kind of stodgy at times, but at some point quarterbacks got to make the plays Connor Basilak make anyone's list he's fighting for that fifth spot for sure uh it's kind yeah. of a it's kind of a mishmash of guys who played pretty impressively against weaker competition early mm -hmm. um so like you need Will more Levis, is he in there yes Who? Will Levis. Like, yeah, four tutties, man. Where Where is he at? Yeah. Let's go. Eat them banana peels. Whatever it's doing, he's doing it right. <laughs> I think Max Johnson is probably pretty good, to that's, be honest. I, I, think they I, asked, I think they asked too much of him. Like, they're trying to ask him to do what Joe, Bur Joe Burrow did with some questionable pass protection stuff. It's all, uh, you know, it's all like one-back run game stuff. It's – I don't think they, they threw a whole lot of RPOs with him. Um, I think they're asking him to do things that I don't know that they have the players around him to do. And they're trying to bring back that Joe Burrow magic and, and just kind of sprinkle it in with, with the Joe Brady thing, the getting his, you know, a guy off that tree to come uh, come coach the offense. I, I think Max Johnson is probably pretty good. I don't think they're putting him in the best situations to succeed right now. In my mind, I was kind of like crossing off guys who I'm pretty sure are not it, right? Like Will Rogers is, is a no. Uh, KJ at Arkansas is likely a no. I don't think anybody from Tennessee, Vandy, or South Carolina. No Bo Nix. Definitely not. Um, I can't I do a breakout candidate. What do we do with Haynes King? 
Haynes King had a couple interceptions, rough start to the game. Everything ended up like leveling out for him, but that is a top five team with a quarterback that does not rank in the top five of the SEC. Mm -mm, Not yet. And this is where the schedule sets up perfectly for Jimbo because now he's got five games to get Haynes King up to speed. Or if you really like, if you really panic, you make a move to Calzada. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think, you see enough skill set there. They play Colorado. Then they got three more like cakewalk games where the defense should be able to keep you just like they did in this game that was ugly. It wasn't pretty in the first half, but you're not panicked because you're not down 14. Like they've got time to develop him, but that's going to be on Jimbo to develop Haynes King, eliminate some of those mistakes before that, you know, Bama comes rolling into town, uh, you know, week six. So I've got I have a breakout. Uh, or sorry, yeah. Chip, go ahead. Um, Bryce Young, Matt Corral, JT Daniels, Max Johnson, Will Levis, Connor Basilak. That's six that I could even feel like are in the discussion. Who's the I, breakout or are we missing somebody? Here's the problem. Like, we all know this is not a podcast that's very high on Bo Nix, but I think part of the problem right now for the SEC when it comes to discussing the quarterbacks is it's not crazy to think Bo Nix could be a top half of the league QB by the end of the season. Mm-hmm, and sure. I think that speaks to a problem for the conference this year. I Ooh, think you know who we you know we've left off the board, Emory Jones. Yeah, I know. Well, he could play my, himself. My breakout star is his backup. Yeah. Oh, it's I, I, really? I think Richardson will take Jones's job by the end of the year. I really do. Yeah. I, I think that staff believes that his ceiling is much higher. Uh, I, I really have no doubts about that. Um, I think the question is is not if but when. And they just go total dual threat with him. Just fully commit to the. Because they uh, ran, I think, throws, I think he throws a better ball than Amory Jones does too. He just wow. doesn't know the offense quite as well yet. They ran a lot of wildcat with him, or didn't, or was it just straight? Did they put him at quarterback? Because I was watching the game, it was on one of the secondary TVs, and I saw like a Richardson touchdown or a Richardson run. I was like, wait, and I didn't see the formation. Were they just running him like RPOs, or were they running him as a wildcat? Or I didn't, I didn't see it. Did any of you guys get to catch it? They did some QB run game stuff, but he, yeah. he was also able to throw some screens. He he jumped over a guy. I don't know if you if you see, if you guys saw that that was a, a freaky yeah I saw freaky that. play I I just think his skills are better than than Emory Jones's I think Emory Jones operates the offense better right now uh, so I I think by the end of the year we'll be talking about Richardson who's your breakout candidate is it Richardson yeah. yeah yeah that's not a top five quarterback in the SEC right now but uh, I I agree with you based on one game of sample size against Florida. And I don't I think I've alluded to it on here before. If Emory Jones was really going to be really good, I think he would have beat out Kyle Trask. Like they wanted to go to him so many times. And I know Kyle Trask, great story. Remains to be seen what he does in the NFL. And for him to get drafted as high he was, I was surprised he got drafted that high. I don't know if he's going to be a success story in the NFL. But I think the staff wanted to give Emory Jones every opportunity to try to take it from him. And the fact that he couldn't and never really even got close to challenging him from the job, I think is more a sign of what we're talking about, why I don't feel confident, even if it was only one game, that he's all of a sudden going to turn it around magically. Coming up on the other side, one of the biggest topics in college football coming out of week one is targeting the targeting rule, the way it is being applied, uh, the punitive measures. And you know, we've got a lot of uh, a lot of smart college football minds. And uh, so the discussions that are going on around the sport, um, what we think could be improved and whether we think the rule as it is is even working, all that, plus 
the most important person in the Alabama dynasty, not named Nick Saban right now, and how talent with the 24-7 sports total team composite may or may not always line up with win totals. Next. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. It's the NFL offseason, but on Pick 6, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, the football season never stops. Host Will Brinson, John Breach, and Tyler Sullivan are joined by analysts like Brady Quinn, Leslie Ducible, Katie Mox, and R.J. White to keep you in the loop on everything happening around the league. Whether it's free agents signing with new teams, the all-important NFL draft, or schedule release day, Pick 6 has you covered. As the face of the league changes with every team move and player pickup this spring, Pick 6 is a must-listen. Download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and anywhere podcasts are found. Oh, yeah. If you are watching on YouTube.com slash Cover 3 right now, then you are seeing just four well-dressed gentlemen. As we all are wearing our gear from Home Field Apparel. Home Field is the premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis. And the things that we enjoy, uh, personally, I'll speak for myself, is number one, just the comfort. Uh, it, incredibly soft material, incredibly comfortable. Uh, it's lightweight, but still can keep you warm. The hoodies are great. The t-shirts are great. Uh, I know that there's uh, there's fans who wear the joggers, and if they have a jogger of a mascot that is a dog, they call them doggers. So you could have your Washington doggers. You could have your Yukon doggers. Um, I mean, it's just they've got this long collection. And all of the logos and the designs, they reach back into the history of some of these schools. They really have a lot of good retro looks. We've got uh, right now Bud is wearing the Memphis State era of Memphis on the T-shirt. Of course, Danny, Colorado School of Mines, nothing but fly sweeps from the ore diggers. Do we have, uh, let's see, Oklahoma State for Tom. And, uh, of course, I am wearing not the Hail to Pit T-shirt, but uh, but the Pit hoodie right now. And Homefield has this cool thing that they've got going on right now called Big News Saturday. It's actually the second season, and it's where they launch a new school collection every Saturday at 12 p.m. Eastern time. So far in this season, there's been Notre Dame, LSU, Texas, Texas A&M, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Kentucky, Tennessee, Florida, Miami, Georgia, Washington, and Boise State. If you're a fan of one of those schools, go to Homefield right now to be able to go and make a purchase. And if you go to make a purchase, which you should do, you can get 15% off your first purchase from Homefield with the code COVER3. Again, go to Homefield Apparel and your first purchase can get 15% off if you use the code COVER3 
We love our partnership with Homefield Apparel and the sweet gear that we get to wear on Saturdays and every single time that we sit down for one of these Cover 3 podcasts. All right, this is a pretty, I think that, let's see, let me check the date on this. Yeah, this was um, from this week. You you asking earlier. We're we're trying to pull questions from the last couple of weeks because we haven't been in the big old bag of mail. This is coming off the weekend from uh, P Money. Been listening to the pod for over two years, and it's my favorite part of the week, getting your guys' locks and takes on the upcoming game. My question is, do you think the current targeting rule should be addressed? Example, this week with the bang-bang play in the Penn State-Wisconsin game, Ellis Brooks was ejected. Do you think it should change to be a penalty, but only ejection if there is another targeting penalty called against them in the same game? This was question was submitted on Saturday after Penn State-Wisconsin. It was a much bigger topic in college football after one, two, three, four, four ejections ah, 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 in the first half of uh, Ole Miss and Louisville. So um, where where are we at with the targeting rule right now? And does it uh, make you concerned or bother you at all with its you know impact on the sport in general? I hate it. <laughs> I'm really tired of, of the targeting rule. I'm not anti-player safety. I just do not think that the targeting rule is actually making the game much safer. I think it's drastically altering outcomes of the game, and I think the way it's written uh, is poor, and I think it makes it tough on officials, and we could make it better. I actually have some some proposed solutions for this. Uh, number one, I do think that we need to go back to the pre-2005 spearing-type rule where refs were asked to judge intent. Now, in 2005, we didn't have replay. Now... We have replay in college football. I do believe that you can judge intent of a tackle, at least to some extent, by looking at the initial path of the tackler relative to where the ball carrier or receiver was when the tackler went into his tackling motion. For instance, if I'm aiming at your rib cage and you duck into me, my initial path was not at your head. You, as an offensive player, have ducked into that hit. It's unfortunate, but you really shouldn't be able to protect both your ribs and your head via your, your, your head or your ribs be a ducking and then your head be be using the rule. You kind of need to pick one. All right. Part of being a receiver is being tough. You're going to get hit in the ribs. Now we have all these receivers who duck into hits and they, then it creates helmet to helmet contact. And we get these flags thrown for targeting. No, we teach these defenders to go low certainly not launch at the head or neck area. If I'm, if I'm, you know, if I'm aiming for your belly button, we routinely see this called every week where a guy ducks into it. So I, I believe we need, because we have replay now, all these are, are reviewed anyway, so it's not going to slow down the game. I think we can take a second and look at initial path intent, right? If you were not intending to, to pop a guy in the head and he ducks into you, that should not be a flag, and it most certainly should not be an ejection. I, I also think... We need to take a look at, at two other intent type things. Number one, did the guy pull up? Do you guys remember the Devin White ejection about two or three years ago against against LSU when they said it was helmet to helmet contact with the quarterback, but White like already had his hands up and he was trying to pull up? If you're actively in in the uh, in the act of pulling up, you are not delivering a serious blow to somebody, right? You have already evidenced your intent to not target them. I think we need to use intent in that way. I also think we need to kind of use intent for the crown of the helmet type stuff. And this is where I think we need to go back to the pre-2005 spearing rule that they changed. They used to ask, because basically the, the crown of the helmet targeting rule is essentially spearing, right? Are you trying to spear somebody with, with the top of your helmet? Way too often we see incidental contact being made in the, 
in the process of a tackle with the top of the helmet. Because if you guys ever played football, tackles happen fast, man. You can you can have good intent, right? People are like, go in with your head up. But we're teaching guys to go low. So when you go low, your head naturally drops somewhat. And yeah, you can have, you want to try to keep your head up, but it's very easy to have the top of your helmet hit their helmet, especially if they're ducking into you. So I really think we need to look at, is this guy trying to deliver a serious blow with the top of his helmet? Like, it's very clear. Are you spearing or are you not, right? If you're just trying to make a good hard tackle, and your helmet ducks a little bit, and you're not trying to pop a guy up in the head area, come on, that shouldn't be a penalty. Like, I'll overplay your safety, but this is over-legislative nonsense, and I, I think we really could change it without slowing the game down because we already have review automatically triggered for all targeting penalties. So I'm, I'm tired of it. I think we need to change the rule. I I did a poll on Monday, you know, when all this was going on. I was just the, the, the two answers. It was either, what do you want to do with targeting? Fix it or ditch it? 68% said fix it. 32% said ditch it. I was actually kind of surprised. I thought it would be closer to 50-50. I, I don't yet. I, I, I like a lot of your ideas, but my, I'm always still concerned, though, about giving officials, like, making them have to judge intent and that kind of stuff. And I agree with you. There's some stuff that you can tell just by watching what a guy's intent was, but there's still also a lot of gray areas and there's a lot of officials who we see mess up basic calls and I still see them messing up those calls. And I don't think we'd see more reviews, but I do think we'll see longer reviews, which will just lead to sitting around longer and waiting for an answer and just kind of taking away from the flow of the game. I think that for me, Whatever we decide to do with this, and I don't think that this is something, this is one of those genies that can't be put back in the bottle, just I think for like legal and lawsuit kind of reasons at this point. But whatever we do, I would like to see a little more common sense in the penalty. Like it should probably just be a 15 yard penalty. We can get rid of the ejection. Because I do think that for the most part, while targeting can't, you can't make the game safe with a penalty. You can't punish people and then think the game's going to get safe because the game at its core is an extremely violent game. It's guys who are large and fast running into each other repeatedly. There's going to be injuries. There's going to be people getting hurt. You can't take that out of the game or it's a fundamentally different sport. But I do think we have seen some improvement in tackling technique because of the rule to where now we're getting to the point where every targeting call is kind of one of those things like you're mentioning where it's, yeah, by the letter of the law, it was targeting, but now we're trying to, to figure out, well, was this guy lowering his head? What was his intent? It's becoming a little too it's a little too gray. It's not as black and white as I think it was in the first couple of years of it, where it's pretty simple. Top of your helmet hits the guy in the helmet, that's probably targeting. You should just, you know, go back to the old adage that they taught us when we were kids. See what you hit. But I, I do think that get rid of of the ejections, not necessarily a straight like yellow card, red card kind of system that you see in soccer, but just basketball it, flagrant one, flagrant two. Yeah. Like just determine like if a guy does it and it's just one of those things where it's like it happens and it's just a natural thing in the course of a game. All right. That's a 15 yard penalty, I guess. I don't even personally, I would rather just get rid of that, yeah. but they can't. So no ejection. If the guys do it twice or if it's just it, egregious cheap shot okay that for kill shots yeah but that's yeah. already a rule so it's like there's there's so much common sense and i think that the box the ncaa put itself in it was just trying to appease everybody be like oh my god football's unsafe blah 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 we got to do something to fix it or people are going to die so they just made this rule without really thinking of the long-term consequences it was going to have and the ability to change it in the future because now it's one of those things is like you know they can't get rid of it because then they open themselves up to lawsuits, lawsuits which they opened up themselves to by putting the rule in place to begin with. 
I think the most important thing you said there, Tom, and you just reiterated it, was the lawsuit factor. This is not about player safety. It's about money. They they cannot subject themselves. And there have already been some payments made, you know, paid out from some schools to players who have died from, you know, head injuries or, what you know, there was there's a lot of gray. I used to talk about gray area, like what caused a player actually dying or what caused the health of a player to decline. So this to me is what it's all about. That's why I don't know. Using a genie out of the bottle, I don't know if we're going back to a pre-2005. I wish we would. Like I, I'm with you. I agree with everything both of you guys said. The game is is not inherently safe at all. It's the exact opposite. That's why people are drawn toward it. It's a physical contact, violent sport. Here's the thing: everyone that plays it knows it is. Yes. Like, you know, so like it's easy for people who don't play or have never played to sit here and say, well, we need to do this to make it safe. It's never going to be safe. Um, And if you want it to be safe, then you truly have to go seven on seven. Like you just take the pads off, have flags, take the helmets off, which I don't know, kind of starting to look that way the longer we go on. So then how do you fix it? And that's the, that's the thing we're trying to hash out here. I don't know if there is a solution. The flagrant one, flagrant two, I think would be a great idea. I think it's really, I think I'm totally on board with Bud. Let the officials judge intent. It's, I don't know if you guys remember when they were trying to decipher what was pornography and what wasn't like, and the old line was like, you know, it's porn when you see it. Mm -hmm. Like that would be me. You know, it's a violent hit worthy of ejection when you see it. Now you hear a play, which you will hear on the field. If you're ever on a sideline at a college football game or an NFL game, you hear a play and there's a, there's a big smack. Like there's a, a collision. Officials are throwing a flag. They don't because they can't even see where what hit what. Where where was his helmet? Where was the indicator? Where was the launch? They throw the flag because it's reactionary. They've been taught it's a point of emphasis to eliminate targeting from the game. So they've been taught when in doubt, throw the flag. Then you slow it down into super slow mo re- uh, replay. Which, if you did this on every play, you could probably find targeting. It's kind of like holding. You could yeah. slow down every single play, and you'd see two helmets collide a lot more times than you wouldn't. So now you're getting into this area. All right, well, we're going to look at it really slow. By definition, it looks like you know it looks like targeting. I think there were two examples of where you could use your common sense in this one, and the Ole Miss Louisville game was a perfect uh, example of it. First, you know, I think it was a draw. I forget what the play was, but guy comes up to fill the hole. Bam! Big hit play tackle i think everybody watching that game is like what a good defensive play but sounded violent throw the flag buzz down you start looking at it you know thousand frames a second or whatever it is and you're like oh yep his helmet crown was there lowered head yep get him out of the game and then you saw the quarterback run crowd runs dual defender steps up he's trying to give himself up you see the defender like kind of look like that spear angle. Quarterback's head goes down. Those are the hits we're trying to eliminate. Pretty easy decision. Get him out of the game. All of this being said, I have one more suggestion for you that maybe because I hate replay. I think replay, you could find, like I said, you could find on in every play. What if you just throw the penalty on the field and maybe it's a let, you know, maybe it's level one, level two. Maybe there's egregious where you have an ejection, but for the replays, and whether they are dealt, doled out like penalty, like playing time, have them do it. Have somebody in the conference offices sit down that reviews all the targeting repl- uh, reviews and says, all right, 
Next game, you're out. Like that was egregious. That was worthy of an ejection. You're going to miss the next game. Now, does it impact a Clemson, Georgia player who doesn't have to leave the game in that game, but then the next week against UAB? Like, no. So maybe you're willing to take that risk. But to me, that would be a way better way to legislate. All right. Is it worthy of ejection? Because it's the penalty is too harsh as we sit here right now. It's just, it's ridiculous. And I think fans are really getting upset by it. It's going to cost teams games. You could argue it already has. And that's what, that's what, that's what worries me is you're going to see a big game, fourth quarter, targeting call, player ejected, and the other team's going to take advantage of it, win a game. And it's just, people are going to get disinterested. Like, what are we doing? This isn't football. There are, uh, rigged. There are 115 FBS teams that if they lose multiple defensive starters are screwed. Yeah. And that might even be low. Like you might even be able to make an argument that all but five or all but 10. I was going to guess 15 just based on the depth of talent at the top. And you still might be in trouble, but then we get to, uh, okay, now you've given the other offensive staff like someone to pick on and it and what, could change the game. What further annoys me to go to a point of what you were saying, Danny, how it's like you can find it on every play. Mm-hmm. watch a replay of any run play and just watch the <laughs> offensive and defensive lines. There's four yep. or five targetings every single damn snap. It's just nobody cares about it because it's in the offensive line. It's like because an offensive lineman and a defensive lineman, you're taught low man wins. How do you get low? Get your head low. Get your head <laughs> low. So what happens? You're immediately ramming your head into the guy across from you's head, and it happens every single play. That's fine. Just don't hit one of the receivers. Watch the ball carriers. Watch the ball carriers when they run the – watch Derrick Henry in an NFL game. Like, they lead with their head. They're battering rams. They never call that. as a weapon. Right. (laughs) And I don't want them to call that. That's what kind of worries me is we might get to a place where they start enforcing that as well. Last thing I wanted to hit on because I did talk to Terry McCauley. We had a little back and forth on Twitter because he was frustrated from an official standpoint. Now, he's the Sunday night football analyst, rules analyst on NBC. He also does the Notre Dame games for NBC, but he also was a longtime NFL and college official, so he's invested in this. He was pushing back on – he's irritated that the officials aren't consistently doling out the same – you know, there's there's some subjectivity and they're not being consistent in their calls. I didn't really see that. I think they're calling them by the letter of the law – which is part of the problem. The law is wrong. But the thing that was most disheartening to me was he said from 2013 to 2018, like a five-year period, he was trying to push the flagrant one, flagrant two levels of targeting. And he said the FBS commissioners didn't want any part of it. They would not even listen to him. Now, I do think you start seeing more games like we saw on the national stage, four players in one half. Maybe there's enough of an outcry from the fans and you saw Lane Kiffin, you know, after the game, coaches will call them out. Maybe they address it, but I still think a lot of this is they are terrified of the lawsuits and the money they could lose if, you know, especially if they put it, dialed it back. Oh, you guys really thought that was a good idea? You're going to dial back the rules that you made for player safety? Now you're going to do away with those? I just think it's a complete mess where we are. So do you guys remember the the uh, Reggie Brown hit uh, by Junior Rosegreen, Auburn, Georgia, 2004? No. No, not off the top of my head. Like, go Google this. It is scary as hell. Like, like Jordan Hare Stadium is just like totally silent. I mean, R- Rose Green just absolutely crushed him, and that was sort of the the impetus for the SEC leading the charge on a targeting rule because spearing just really wasn't called. Like that, those type of hits are the type of hits that we were trying to take out of the game. That's what the targeting rule was for. 
really. It's the kill shots, right? It's the like very clear defensive defenseless guy. You're leaving your feet. You're you're absolutely driving up and through with your head, head to head shots, like the shots that 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 paralyze guys, you know. And the hitter, by the way, can be paralyzed mm-hmm. from that. These shots that, that we're seeing now that are getting flagged are are not a big deal within the context of how the game of football is played for the most part. That that's I I really wonder because they used to have intent in the rule before they had replay. If we had replay, do you think they ever remove intent? Because I feel like like the impetus here, I, I was reading from um, uh, Ron Corson, who was the uh, SEC's official back in 2005. I found this article. He's basically talking about how uh, it was almost impossible for them to judge intent at real speed. I really wonder if back in the day, if they had replay, do we have intent in the targeting rule? And if like, you know, now that we have replay, we should look at that, I think. I know it's tough, but... I, I think they're really handcuffed by the letter of the law right now, and it leads to totally. some really unfair outcomes. Totally. And and watch any game, and if I'm telling you, if they hear a big hit or you see it on TV, they're almost automatically going to throw the flag. It's been a point of emphasis. What I wish would happen, and they we also saw in the Ohio State-Minnesota game, remember the roughing the passer where you said he landed on him or the head to the neck or, or hands to the face like helmet area? And there was one really incidental hand, and yeah. I know they have to call that. But in the NFL, do you guys remember after the Aaron Rodgers injury, it was going to be a point of emphasis, protect the quarterbacks. And there were a couple tackles in the preseason where quarterback, maybe even weeks one and two, mm-hmm. quarterbacks hit, defensive lineman lands on them, and you know, f- f- instant penalty, fans lost their mind. And then all of a sudden, it kind of went away. Like You could easily call your officials and say, hey, we know we want this to be a point of emphasis, Let's be a little bit more judicious with when we throw our penalties. Like, let's not be so reactionary. I wish that would happen. I don't think it will, but like, that's a pretty easy fix, too. Let's, you got the letter of the law, but let's use a little bit of judgment in there as well. I feel like I it's one Pavlovian more. at this point. Like, the ref hears the crowd go, ooh, yes. the flag comes out immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I also think, just to be consistent here, if you get hit by a quote unquote targeting penalty, like if you're the recipient of the hit, if we're going to claim that that penalty is serious enough to eject somebody, you better come out of the game. Like you, like I, I feel like, like if we're going to pretend like these hits are that big of a deal, let's let's put you in yeah. protocol right there and have you checked out. You shouldn't be able to just stay on the play. Like if you're fine, guess what? Probably wasn't that big of a hit. Also, I really think any kind of time when you hit somebody like this or like that, unless you're really bowing up and hitting them forearm or elbow, like hands or forearms that are not you know, bowed up should not trigger targeting penalties. Like you're not launching with, with, with an open palm into the quarterback. That's like, that's illegal hands to the face maybe, but that that's silliness. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to get cussed by Quarterbacks that. are pretty though. And we have to protect their faces. <laughs> that's right. We could have done an hour pod special on targeting alone. I listen, I'm, I'm we might maybe, have to. Well, listen, like, that's one of the things that the Wednesday show is for is for us to really take some time to dig in because we don't have a long laundry list of headlines to hit on Monday. We're not doing our full slate of locks. Like that is what this show is for. So I'm glad that we were able to, uh, to provide that. And thank you of course, for the question. All right, let's do one more before we get out of here. Uh, Question says, great pod is always here for here, especially for all the bud first half bets. Seriously, I need more question. The Alabama dynasty seems like it will continue after its beatdown of Miami and all the new pieces fitting right in outside of Nick Saban. Who is the most important person in the current Alabama run parentheses 
can be any player, any coach, any booster, any athletic department staffer, et cetera, et cetera. The fans. <laughs> Dr. Matt Ray. But he hasn't been there the whole time. He's only helped fine tune it. But we were saying, like, I was looking at it like right now. Oh. That if like soft tissue injuries are down 30%, and if the Alabama team that showed up to Atlanta in January of 2018, then you're talking to the Alabama staffers, and they're like, dude, we are beat up right now. We are in bad shape. And like, we look at the injuries of a Tua Tugavailoa or a Jalen Waddle, you know, just sort of the, the stars. But I remember just like the depth has really been tested from this Alabama team near the end of the Scott Cochran run as strength and conditioning coordinator. Um, Nick Saban has sung the praises of the new strength and conditioning program and injuries are going to be very, very important, especially at the quarterback position. If Alabama is going to continue to be the number one team in the country, my answer is Dr. Matt Ray. I mean, given all the turnover that they have on both sides of the ball, how many actual answers are there for this, right? There's <laughs> Dr. Matt Ray, who I think is probably going to be my answer. Uh, Pete Bill Golding has turned out. But Bill O'Brien's only been there for, like, what, seven months? That's that's why, you know what it is? It's the rules which allow you to have as many analysts as you want because look at all the coaches who have gone, spent a year or two, watching, absorbing, getting familiar with the system. And then when the actual position coach coordinator goes on, you got somebody who's familiar with the system, steps right in, bam, you're right there. Now, I know Bill O'Brien didn't have that opportunity, but the ability to have some continuity on that staff, the ability to draw coaches to – does he have, is there a name for uh, – like I know Gruden used to have the, uh, the Fired Football Coaches Association. I don't know what the name is for. The coaching rehab. Yeah, the coaching rehab program, but to me, that is a massive advantage too. Man, it's whatever boosters cutting the checks. Is that four and five stars help a lot too? Yeah. I think. What do you think, Tom? The fans. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow him on Twitter at Tom Brunelli. You can follow him at Danny Cannell. You can follow him at Bud Elliott Three. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. We will be back live on Thursday with our Week Two locks. You can follow along at YouTube.com/slash Cover Three. Of course, they will be delivered around lunchtime for all you podcast subscribers. Locks live Thursday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thursday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. That's when the locks live are being recorded, and you can be a part of it at youtube.com slash cover three. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. are focusing on the brutal slayings of four college kids. A new Paramount Plus original docuseries. This is the start of something major. Follows online detectives as they unravel the mystery of the infamous Idaho college murders. There's plenty of places to hide a weapon. And turned it into a social media phenomenon. Where are the roommates It is a huge night. I want the truth from you. Hashtag Cyber Sleuths. The Idaho Murders. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus.